The following is a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people. I want to try to encourage you from Colossians chapter 1 as we think about, uh, about the church together. There is an insert in your bulletin. It gives you um, basically uh, the points that I want to make, the major ones, and then some of the scriptures I'm going to refer to. But in a world of injustice and excess, of suffering and sorrow, of joy and pleasure, of power and politics, some people in our culture might wonder why we choose to spend Sunday mornings here. When there's so many other things from their standpoint, particularly, that they could be doing and uh, would want to do, they wonder why we would spend Sunday mornings in a church with the central purpose in view of worshiping a God we cannot see and studying a book which is centuries and centuries old. And we could respond to that question in many ways, but I'd like to have us do so by considering this one compelling question. Uh, Philip Yancey has written a little book called Church, Why Bother? I'm not sure if you've read Philip Yancey's work, but um, he's an interesting writer, interesting person. I once uh, went and heard him <clears throat> speak at a gathering of Baptist ministers out in Banff, uh, near the Banff Springs Hotel, one of the outbuildings, and he was speaking to about 300 Baptist pastors. And Philip Yancey uh, is a runner, and on that particular occasion, uh, he was using his running as an illustration, as his opening illustration. So he actually took off his uh, shoe and his sock to point out the calluses and the deformities that have happened in his feet because of running. And I don't think he actually ever put that shoe and sock back on again, now to think of it. So Philip Yancey will, he will uh, cause you to think about things because he comes at them from a number of different ways. But his book, Why Bother, is well worth reading. And it's that title, why, Church, Why Bother, and that question that we want to consider from the Bible this morning. Now, it's un- unfortunate, but it's true that the title of Yancey's book also describes fairly accurately the attitude that many people have today toward the church. They say, church, why bother? Our culture tends to see the church from many varied perspectives. Some see the body of Christ as rather helpful, others as rather useless, some as downright dangerous. And if Christians, or or sorry, even Christians can be negative in how they speak of the church at times. Some of those voices you don't really want to listen to all that much, but some of them, some of what they say at least, requires our careful attention. So Madeline Lengel is an author, and she once said that the modern church is a safe place to escape the awful demands of God. The modern church is a safe place to escape the awful demands of God. And I'll let you think about it. But there are times when we as believers allow and perhaps even cause the church of Jesus Christ to become less than what he wants it to be. 
a diminished entity, a mere shadow of what God intends it to be. And just to give you some reference points, think of the church in Acts. Think of the church today in Africa or China, even in Iraq, because we always hear about the terrible things that are happening in Iraq and Afghanistan and places where ISIL or ISIS or whatever you call it is active. What we don't hear is that the church there is growing because of those things. And so God takes the worst possible things, which of course he did with his, the death of his son on the cross, and turns them into something good. So sometimes we don't allow the church to be all that God wants it to be. But some of the voices that we hear today aren't helpful at all. And just a few of them in what they say about the church. There's too many hypocrites in the church for me. Well, that may be true. I think the place where you find the most hypocrites is about half a kilometer in front of and behind a police car as it drives down the street. Because everyone's a law-abiding citizen, right? (laughs) Some people say that preaching is outdated. We need to find new ways to communicate the gospel. And it's true, we need to find new ways, but I'm not of the opinion that preaching is outdated. The church just needs to meet, just didn't meet my needs when I tried it. A modern fallacy that portends that the church exists to meet my needs. Which is not why God created the church. Not why God brought it into being to meet my needs. Now it so happens that my needs are met as I'm involved in the church, but that's not why God brought the church into being. He brought it into being for his glory. We're too, just too busy with camping or hockey or skiing or sleeping in. The church really isn't my style, it's too boring, which of course assumes that being entertaining to me is again why the church exists. So those are some of the unhelpful comments you find, and often they're excuses as to why people are not involved in church. But I want you to think for a moment, just what is the church? How would you define it? Again, we could spend a long time here, let me just suggest a few things. The Bible speaks of the church as a bride, the bride of Christ. The one that he loves. The one that will one day sit in that marriage supper of the Lamb with him. The church is a building comprised of stones that are built together to form an edifice. The church is a body composed of many parts. But essentially, if you boil it all down, the church is people. It's people who have been gathered by God to his Son. It's the sovereign work of God gathering people to follow Jesus Christ that forms the church. And these people belong to Jesus because they've been redeemed by his blood. People who in grateful love worship and give their lives to love Jesus and to serve him and his people and others until he comes again. So that's the church. It's people, people who belong to Jesus all around the world, but of course gathered into small um, churches and large throughout the world. You may not realize it, but the average church in North America is probably about 75 people. The church I grew up in was never more than 50. Sometimes we had a pastor. A lot of the times we didn't have a pastor. Small town, southern Saskatchewan, um, people, pastors came and went. But the church was there uh, for the long term. So today we want to look at the church through the eyes of those who know her best. 
and consider how they felt about the church. How would the Apostle Paul feel about the statement, church, why bother? And how does Jesus feel about his bride? So listen, first of all, to Paul as he describes the price that he paid to preach the gospel and to lay the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. And this is um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I think it's there on your sheet if you want, or in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's how Paul describes his work of preaching the gospel and what happened along with that. Five times I received, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 24, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. In other words, five times he was lashed thirty-nine times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. It's quite a price to pay to preach the gospel and to plant the church of Jesus Christ. So what would Paul look like, do you think, if you were to meet him on the street? Well, the Bible seems to indicate he wasn't much to look at. <clears throat> Even that perhaps his preaching wasn't much to listen to, at least from some of his critics. But I think if you met him on the street, he might have some scars. You can't take 195 lashes with the cat of nine tails, little pieces of bone and stone embedded in them. You can't take 195 lashes and not have some scars. I think there's probably some bumps and bruises. You can't have stones thrown at your head. Paul was left for dead after he was stoned. You can't have that happen to you and not have some scar tissue. But I think what we'd notice most is his indomitable spirit. After listening to that, you might say, well, why didn't you just quit, Paul? After all that stuff that's happened to you, why didn't you just stop? Why keep on? And Paul says the love of Christ compels us because we thus reason that if one died for all, then all were dead. So Paul was, was compelled by the love of Christ, and that's why he was so passionate about the church. If you listen to him uh, speak in 1 Timothy chapter 1, again, I've given you the passage there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus once told a story about two men who had been forgiven debts. One the debt of millions and millions of dollars and one the debt of whatever, 50 bucks. 
And then he asked his hearers, so of those two men, who do you think will love the one who forgave them most? And they said, of course, well, probably the one who was forgiven the most. And Jesus says, you've judged rightly. And then he said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And that's why as Christians and as the church, we need to be careful not to stop talking about sin. Because if I'm a good person, I haven't done anything wrong, and I'm okay, and, and uh, I'm a great person, and I, uh, I can do whatever I want, and things I'm good, what am I saved from? But if I realize my own heart, as God reminds me of fairly regularly in my life, if not every day, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I sin in my thoughts and in what I do and the way I speak. And it's only the grace of God that is ever going to get me to heaven. Only the grace of God. And so Paul never forgot what he was saved from. And and it was that grace of God and the forgiveness that he experienced through Christ, it was that which compelled him to go and tell others about it. He said, I'm a debtor to the Jews and to the Greeks to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that had transformed his life. And so Paul felt the call of God on his life to preach the gospel of grace and to live out the mercy of Jesus. And what did Paul say about all that he had suffered to see people come to Christ? And this is where we want to spend our time this morning in, in Colossians chapter three or Colossians chapter one. Verses 24 to 29. And there, as Paul um, reflects without mentioning it um, specifically, he says in Colossians 1, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, that is to his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. (coughs) So why bother about the church? Uh, Here in this A short passage, Paul gives us three vital things about the church that are to govern our thinking and to guide our our lives. You see, we're not to be concerned about what happens in an election in the United States. 
We're not to be worried about who the political party is in Canada or in, even in Alberta. We have a totally other focus, and that focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church that God has called us to be a part of. Those other things are irrelevant to some degree. Now, I know they do affect us, and we have to factor them in, but the focus of our lives is not to be who's the President of the United States or who's the Prime Minister of Canada or who's the Premier of the province of Alberta. I think the Bible says somewhere about setting your minds on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of God. That that's where our focus is to be, where our citizenship is in heaven, the Bible says. And so as, as Christians, and, and trust me, I've been as caught up in this whole thing as you have in terms of trying to follow what's going on. But that's what, not where our focus is to be. And so this particular message this morning is, I hope, to help bring us back to the fact that, that we're about the church, not about politics, but about the church of Jesus Christ. So three things about the church that Paul reveals to us here that's to guide our thinking and to govern our lives. First of all, the church is worth suffering for. The church is worth suffering for. Why bother about it? Because it's worth suffering for. Paul says here, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So Paul's sufferings then were a source of joy for him. That's not masochism. Masochism, of course, is hitting my head against the wall because it feels so good when I stop. (coughs) It's not Paul wanting to be punished in order to feel good, but rather, as he says here, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. So what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, it's not that anything has to be done yet to earn our salvation, right? That was all accomplished on the cross when Jesus died on the cross. Nothing you do, nothing I do, nothing we suffer will ever make our salvation more complete. That's not what he's talking about. But Paul and the whole New Testament, as I'll point out to you in a moment, gives us an indication that this matter of suffering is something that we're called to as Christians. And as we suffer, there is some mysterious way in which we fill up the sufferings of Christ. We complete those sufferings that need to take place in order that his glory may be revealed. So Acts chapter 9, verse 16. This is what God told Ananias that he was to say to Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So so from the very beginning, it was God's purpose for Paul that he would suffer for Jesus' sake, that that's one way he would bring glory to Jesus. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the Christian life, friends. True for us as it was true for them. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you, Philippians, that for the sake of Christ 
you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, Paul says, know Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then one final one, Revelation 6 verse, 6, verse 11. Then the martyrs were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So suffering is part of the Christian life. And what Paul says is, I rejoice in my sufferings because I know that God is using my sufferings to bring people to Christ. And, and it's similar to Iraq and, and Iran and, and that part of the world, where God is using the sufferings of people to bring people into his kingdom. And I don't need to tell you that, that our culture recoils against that idea, that God would somehow use someone's suffering to bring glory to his name and to bring people to Christ. But that's how the Christian life works. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, is a famous quote from church history. That's how God has always worked. And so as you go through suffering in your life, you should be counting on the fact that somehow God is going to use your suffering as you remain true to him in it to bring other people to Christ, to show them what it's like when a Christian suffers. You see, when everything's great, people don't look at us as Christians nearly as much. But when we suffer, when we go through the hard times of life, they're paying close attention because they've heard us talk about what it means to be Christian and they're saying, well, now, so how does he respond when he suffers? So the question for us then, if the church is worth suffering for, is am I suffering for, with Jesus for the growth of his church? Do I pour myself out so that the gospel is preached and fellow believers are built up? And here's a verse just to underline it in your mind. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it's not in your bulletin. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says about Jesus that he learned obedience through what he suffered. And I don't know that I understand what is God is saying there in terms of understanding it, but it's true. And that is through his sufferings, somehow Jesus learned obedience. So if that was true of the Son of God, it will likely be true of you and I. That it's when we suffer that we learn obedience. Well, secondly, the church is worth serving. Uh, here in Colossians chapter 1, we see that Paul felt very strongly that he was a servant of the church. Verse 25, of which the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. <clears throat> so he was a servant to the church. That word servant there, or sorry, that word uh, minister there in the ESV is really diakonos, and diakonos is, of course, the word from which we get deacon, and it means servant. So a deacon is a servant, and a minister is a servant. A minister is not someone who has a special corner office and drives a, a fancy car and has everyone wait upon them hand and foot. 
Jesus said, He who would be great among you must be the servant of all. And Paul saw himself as a servant to the church according to the stewardship that God gave him. So God gave him a stewardship. God gave him a a charge to carry out with regard to the church. And Paul felt very strong that he was to use his life, his time, his gifts, his energy to make God's word fully known, to proclaim Jesus Christ. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil to prevent, to, to, sorry, to present, present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul was called to proclaim Jesus Christ, to warn people, to teach them, to bring them to maturity in Christ. And he says, for this I toil. The Greek word toil there means work to the point of pain. It's not some fancy thing that we toss off by doing one hour a week. It's work to the point of pain. And that work was vital to Paul. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy. That The Greek word struggle there is agonizomai. And I only say the Greek word so you get the fact that agony is in there. He, Paul says, for this I toil, agonizing with all his energy to present people mature in Christ so that they might grow in him and be built up. It was the focus of Paul's life and the focus of all his work. And one of the interesting things is um, Paul talks at one point about how his service is commended. And I don't think I've given you this verse, but it's from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, you've probably had, if you listen to (coughs) Christian TV at all, and I don't, because I'm usually busy on Sunday mornings. Paul says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves. You've probably heard too many servants of God commending themselves and asking you to send them money. But listen to how Paul says, we commend ourselves as servants of God. As servants of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. That's how the servant of God commends themselves. And so... When you look at the lives of those who serve the church, look for those things. Long service through tough times commends a servant of God. And Paul, of course, is simply following the example of his Lord who said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So, my friends, this is what God calls each of us to do in and for the church. To serve the church. The church is worth serving. So when it comes to the life of the body, are you a serving Christian, one who pours himself out for the sake of the church, or a sitting Christian? Because Carol and I have found in the years of ministry that God has given us that the joy that makes life rich and worthwhile comes as we serve God and as we serve his people. Not as we wait for them to come and talk to us about how great we are, but to serve them to pour out our lives so that they can be built up in their faith. The church is worth serving. Thirdly, the church is worth showing to the world. The amazing message of the New Testament is that God has revealed a mystery to his church, and through the church he is revealing both himself and the greatness of, the, of his uh, wisdom. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 13. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Another one of those concepts that's a little hard to get your mind around, but what Paul is saying is that somehow through us, uh, through the body of Christ, through the church, God is showing to principalities and powers, to angels and demons, he is showing his wisdom through the church. And how he's doing that is beyond me, but that's what the Bible says he's doing. And so we need to recognize that the reason we exist as Christians, the reason God's called us to be the church, is so that he can show both himself and the greatness of his wisdom to people that we may never realize are, are watching. And the mystery that God has revealed and is revealing is that of Colossians chapter 1 that we're studying here this morning. The mystery is this, verse 27, to them, to his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery there are some others, too, that we could talk about, but that's the one that Paul is focusing on here. The mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because we've lived with it as Christians so long, and because it's become so commonplace for us, sometimes I think we don't really think about what God is saying here. And what he's saying is that if you're a Christian this morning, and if you've truly given your heart to Christ, that by his Holy Spirit, God lives in you. And so when you go out through these doors and out to whatever it is you do, whether it's school or your work or your retirement or whatever it is that God has given you to do, you take Jesus with you. And, if, and for many of the people in this world, if they don't see Jesus in you, they won't see him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. And of course, um, God, Paul puts it another way when he's in another place when he says that we have this treasure in, in, in little clay pots. We don't look like much. 
We're not outstanding. We're not people that someone would maybe normally notice. But God says that in you, that little clay pot, in you lives the most amazing person in the, in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Christ in you, my friend. That's what the mystery is that makes the church worth showing to the world. It's not that God wants the church, the world to see us, except as when they see us, they can see Jesus Christ. It's not us he wants to show to the world. It's his son Jesus in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's him that we're to proclaim and him that we're to reveal by our lives, struggling with all of his might to do it, as Paul talks about here. And, and we're to do all that so that somehow, through God's grace and through his sovereignty, people will see Christ in us and be drawn to him and come to faith in him and have their sins forgiven and be forever in heaven with us because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, listen finally to how Jesus feels about the church. Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ's love was most evident when he gave himself up for the church. And my friend, that's where our love for the church will be clearest too, when we give ourselves up for her, for a brother, for a sister, for the work of, of Christ in the church, for the work of Christ as it goes forth from the church. It's not an easy life. It means giving yourself up. It means dying to yourself, which is what Christ calls us to do. But it's the gr- life of great purpose and of wonderful reward. So then we need to be careful how we speak of Christ and how we speak of his bride. And so when we say, church, why bother? Those can be perilous words. And I hope that that's not your attitude to the bride of Christ. Well, as I close, I want you to listen to the words of a man named Alexis de Tocqueville. I'm probably not pronouncing his name right. He was an aristocratic Frenchman who came to the United States in 1831, later wrote a book called Democracy in America, a two-volume study of the American people and their political institutions, a book that is often quoted by journalists and politicians. So let me quote de Tocqueville for you for just a moment. I sought for the key to the greatness and the genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields and boundless forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce, in her public school system and her institutions of learning. I sought for it in her democratic, democratic Congress, in her matchless constitution. But not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her power. Not until I went into her churches did I understand. America is great because America is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And friends, that's not just a message for America. It's a message for Canada. Does the power and the proclamation of the word of God through the church 
and through our lives as followers of Jesus, does it impact our nation? Because that's what God intends it would be, would do. That's not to be our purpose. We're simply just to go out and, and we win people to Christ. But if we preach the word and if we live out the life of Jesus in our lives, you can count on the fact it will affect our nation. And listen, finally, to a poem, to the words of an unknown Christian as he reflects or she reflects on what God calls us to be as the bride of Christ and what he wants us to do for his name and his glory. Here's the poem. You have builded temples in his name of mortar and brick and stone with windows of glass most beautifully stained with steeple and spire and stone But what do we of the byways care for structure and line and trim? Out in the dust of the lonely road, we only ask for him. You have robed your choirs and trained them well in proper and intricate song. You have bought fine organs to edify and lull the weary throng. But what do we care for your well-robed choir or your organs deep? Amen. We want you to walk beside us here and point us the way to him. Oh, the roads of the world are a crooked maze, and we are woefully lost. For the road to him in the paths of men is faint and hidden and crossed. What do we care for the trappings of art when our heart's high hope is dim? We seek the touch of his healing hand. Oh, show us the way to him. When Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus in Luke 19, he told Zacchaeus that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And when Jesus said that, he underlines exactly why we need to be focused on the church. Why bother? Because the church is the body that Jesus died to bring into being. It is the place where he still lives and walks and works out his blessed will. It is where he calls us together and individually to worship him and bring glory to his name. But it's also the place that he uses the people that he uses to touch the people of this world with the gospel of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we might be passionate about your church. For Jesus, it is, she's your bride. She's the one that you love, the one that you died to bring into being. And Father, what a joy it is to count ourselves if we belong to Jesus this morning as part of that body, of that building, of that bride. And we ask, dear Lord, that you'll help us to live in such a way as to lift up the name of Christ and to proclaim the joy of being a part of his church. And Father, to that end, we commit ourselves for this day and for the days and weeks and months and years ahead until you come again. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people.